I want to help other women learn to love their muscles and, and learn to love to lift and, and also just know what to do. Because that's why I think a lot of times women just stay away from it. You're listening to Muscle Medicine, where we debunk the myths in the health and wellness world to bring you the latest updates in exercise, rehab, and nutrition from industry leaders. Join your host, Dr. Emily Kybert, chiropractor and movement expert, as she brings you simple, actionable tips to reach your fullest potential. Dr. Emily Kybert here. We are joined today by Artemis Scantilides, a former ballet dancer turned kung fu black belt and the ninth woman in the world and the lightest and smallest to date to complete the Iron Maiden Challenge. If you're wondering, what's the Iron Maiden Challenge? She'll tell you all the details in the episode. I was there in person. It was incredible. There were 100 people there and 90 of them at least broke into tears. Artemis seeks to empower women through strength. We all know this is so important for maintaining muscle and muscle mass as she continues to encourage and inspire women to not be afraid to lift weights. And she swears by kettlebell training and strength training. And you know that is near and dear to our heart. So enjoy the episode. She is a total powerhouse. I can't wait for you to listen. Artemis, we're so excited to have you on Muscle Medicine Podcast today. I first met you on this very epic day in, I think it was July, four years ago, Mm -hmm. and I watched you complete your Iron Maiden at uh, Strong First. Can you tell us what that is? It's so great to be here, Emily. Thank you for having me on. The Iron Maiden Challenge is, it's a challenge in the hard style kettlebell community. It's available to both men and women. So for women, it's called the Iron Maiden Challenge. And for men, it's called the Beast Tamer Challenge. And what women have to do is they have to use a 24 kilogram kettlebell, which is 53 pounds. And there are three lifts. You have to complete a strict tactical grip pull-up, which is an overhand grip with thumbs on top. And you have to do the pull-up from a dead hang. So you have to show that hang. And then you have to get either throat or a collarbone to the bar, but at least throat. So it has to, it can't be like a chin creep. And then you have to do a strict military press. So clean the bell, pause, no push press or anything, show a pause after the clean, and then go into a strict military press and a pistol squat, which is a single leg squat. So you have to use that weight for all three lifts. And then men have to use a 48 kilogram bell, which is 106 pounds. And for the press and the pistol squat, you just have to do one side. All lifts are just one rep, but it's hard to get all of the lifts together all in one day and be able to do it under pressure. And most people who train for the challenge have have one of the lifts is usually like their nemesis. One of the lifts is usually something they have to work really hard for. So you usually get the first two in your training and then you're just working really hard for that third one. And then just, you know, the magic is really just getting everything to come together in one day and just being able to rise to the occasion. So. And for our listeners who haven't seen you on Instagram, but they should have, tell them how your size and weight in in relationship to this press pistol squat and pull up. So I'm just about five, one, not quite just 
60 and a half inches tall and I average 115 pounds. So this 53 pound bell is almost, it's almost half my body weight. So the press was the most challenging for me to have to press that weight overhead. And, and really what that came down to was really dialing in the skill. You know, I built up the strength, but really dialing in the skill of, of pressing that we learn at Strong First and RKC certifications at both of them, that hard style skill in order to press the, the weight. So I remember that day so clearly. I think you started with your press yeah, and then it was tricky to get over. So you shook it off and you're like, all right, I'm going to do my pull up, banged out the pistol squat, was like, <laughs> like nothing. <laughs> and then you went back to the press and yeah. there was literally, I think like 80 people there. Yeah. And we were all in a very small, you know, because it was at the Muay Thai gym. Yeah, um, five points. Five points. And it was, so we were all in this very small area where the pull-up bar was. And so the press was something I had, I had first attempted the Iron Maiden Challenge in October of 2013. And I pressed it and I had this crazy lean. It was almost, it was basically like a, a side press. It wasn't even a military press. And so I had to come back and just repattern my press and almost basically relearn how to press the bell. So when I did that, when I first pressed the, the 24 kilogram bell again, six months later, after my first attempt, I pressed it on the left side. And part of my goal when I went back to retrain the press was to get rid of that lean because it was I was using my back to get the bell overhead and not using my lats and my glutes and my quads and everything. So like a lot um, of people do sometimes, you know, it's only yeah. almost half your body weight. <laughs> I don't know what you guys are talking so, about. <laughs> So one of my concerns is not having a lean. And so ultimately I wanted to press with my right side because I never had a lean with my press on my right side, but on my left, I tended to have a lean. However, I hadn't pressed the 24 kilogram on my right side yet. I pressed the 24 one exactly one week before the Iron Maiden challenge that year on my right side. Wow. And so when that day came, I was like, I'm going to do my hardest, which this was not the right approach. I shouldn't have gone. I should have gone into the whole challenge and done the lifts the way, the order that I did them in my training. And in my training, I always did pull up, pistol, press. So I should have done that, but I went in and this was not a good decision at the time. And I decided to, I mean, it worked out in the end, but I decided to do my hardest lift first and press it on the right side. And I had only pressed it on the right side like the week before, but I was like, I'm going to do it today. So that's what happened with the press. I went in and I went to press it on the right side and it wasn't going where I wanted it to go. So I was like, all right, I'm going to put it down. And for those of you who are listening, you get two attempts so if I had gone back and done the press again and failed it, then I would have been done. So you get two attempts. You can fail once at any of the lifts, but if you fail twice in a row, then you're done. So what I did after I, I went to go press on the right, it wasn't going where I wanted it to. So I just put it down and I walked away. And then that's when John Ingham said to me, you know, if you, on the next lift, he said, what do you want to do? Do you want to do the press? Do you want to move on to something else? Because if you fail, next time you fail, like you're done. And I said, you know what? Let's just go. I know I got the pull up. I know I got the pistol. Thanks, let's just, yeah, let's just, let's just do it in the order that I do it in my training anyway. Let's just do it the way I should have done in the first place. So I went and did the pull up and then I did the pistol. And then when I came back to the press, there was, I was having this huge decision of like, do I want to try it on the right? 
again and maybe I'll get it? Or do I want to try it on the left and just fight the lean if I happen to start to have a lean? And I would just, so I decided to go left because I knew it would go up and I would just have to manage the lean if there was going to be a lean at all. And I ended up like not even really having a lean. I just kind of like moved out of the way of the bell. It actually went up pretty much straight up on the left side. So that's what happened with that. And it was funny because everyone was like, was this a joke? Like, were you screwing with us when you were first <laughs> coming out and trying to press it with the right? Because that went up really easy on the left. It you went know? up so smooth. <laughs> and literally 40 out of those 80 people, including myself, were in tears. Yeah, it was, it was so inspiring. Yeah, it was really, yeah. It was, I think it was just like no one expected it to go up <laughs> the way it did. So. <laughs> And I think everyone, everyone wanted it so badly to just to happen. So I think we, at the end, it was very emotional. Oh, it was, so, it was yeah, nice. Absolutely. It was special. You've had this amazing <laughs> transformation and journey from being a dancer to pursuing Kung Fu to Strong First, which is mainly kettlebell based, to powerlifting. Can you just take us through that journey. And I know you've also had like a little stint of running in there, which I've seen on your Instagram that you've talked about. Yeah. So I started taking ballet when I was three and a half and I studied ballet until I was 27. And when I was a teenager, I used to go to the Boston Ballet and I would study it intensely. I was, you know, every single day I was there and I would perform in their children's casts of their performances, like the Nutcracker And when I was a teenager, I thought, you know, this was something that I might want to do for a career. I really, really enjoyed it a lot. But then I had a number of bad experiences in terms of body image. So it can be when it comes to, especially with classical ballet, a lot of artistic directors and choreographers are very strict about like what they want for body types for their shows and what fits the mold of being a classical ballet dancer. And it was something that my body type didn't really fit. I was short, athletic, and I was always someone who was considered fat or too curvy. And that, you know, that definitely took a toll being told that over and over and over again by my ballet instructors. So by the time I was in like about a sophomore in high school, I was just sort of I just had a bad taste in my mouth when it came to ballet. Like I still did it, you know, well into my late twenties, but I still kept up with it just for myself because I did enjoy dancing, but the whole, I guess the, the environment I didn't really enjoy. And, and that was, that was when I made the decision, okay, this is not going to be my profession. I'm going to go to college. I'm going to go do something else. And around that time, that's when I got into running and, and, and also lifting weights at the time it was early 90s. So like Nautilus machines, stationary machines were really popular. So I'd like go to the YMCA and I would do those. And I was trying to build arms like uh, Linda Hamilton and Terminator 2. And <laughs> and I did start running. I started to, I don't know why I did, but I did. I started running like maybe up to like, you know, one to three miles a couple times a week. And I was still taking dance classes, just not as intensely. And then in my late 20s, that's when, even though I was keeping up with ballet, I was just doing it at that point because it was like, it was habit. It was something that I had done all my life. I was just going through the motions. I was just used to always being active. It had always been a part of my life. So it was really hard to let go of. And my brother, he is a fourth degree black belt in Taekwondo. He's studying jujitsu right now. I think he's a blue belt. I think he just got his blue belt in jujitsu. And he's also, he's, he's studying Muay Thai. So at the time, 
He said, you know, you should really try martial arts, Artemis. I really think you would like it a lot. I think it'd be really empowering for you. It'd be a really good transition from dance. And, and so I said, okay. So I took his advice and then I went with a friend of mine who studied Kung Fu and I went to Kung Fu with her and I just fell in love right away. And I think I loved it because as a dancer, it was really easy for me to relate to Kung Fu because just the way there are forms in Kung Fu, you know, there's combinations in dance and there's forms in Kung Fu. So I could understand that and honing in on the skill of learning the different pieces of either the combinations or the forms. So I think that was one of the reasons why I could relate to it. And then I loved it because no one was scrutinizing my body in a leotard and tights. I was wearing like really baggy, like MC Hammer pants and a t-shirt and, you know, no one cared about like what your body looked like. They just wanted you to be strong and powerful. And I really liked that a lot. That was very empowering for me. So that was a transitional part in my journey. So that was a point where I started to focus on what I could do and not so much on what I looked like and what physical activity made me look like. Which is so important mentally. Oh, yeah. Definitely. And then it just, it just gets your focus away from those, you know, that aesthetic, those aesthetic goals, which is a good thing. Cause then you start to focus on performance goals and then eventually you reach your aesthetic goals if you have them and, and you're not even thinking about them, but it's just psychologically it is, it's much more healthy to focus on performance goals. And I was still lifting. I was, I was still like, I had moved beyond doing stationary machines and I was doing other, other things, lifting in my late twenties. And then I was starting to study for my black belt in Kung Fu. And that was the year, that year that I tested for my black belt in Kung Fu was the year that I discovered kettlebells. And I got my first kettlebell certification. And again, the transition was I fell in love with kettlebells because again, there's skill required. You have to hone in on the skill. And I love that it was weight training, but it was very different than just picking up a, a pair of dumbbells or using a barbell. They're a lot more dynamic. So I really enjoyed that. And so then from there, that led me to get my, at the time, Strong First wasn't established, so that led me to get my RKC certification. What year was this? I feel like you were entering right as it was like forming. Yeah. So let's see, I got my first kettlebell certification that was not RKC. That was in 2008. And then I worked with kettlebells under that until 2011 was when I went for my RKC certification. So I think they had been around since 2006. So it had been a little while. But when it first came around in 2006, the really it took a while for the organization and what the kettlebell was and to, to become known. So even in 2011, it still was not that well known. So then when I went to get my certification in 2011, that's when I learned about the Iron Maiden Challenge. For me, I like to have these performance goals, like getting my black belt and the Iron Maiden challenge. So I had finished my black belt and I was like on to kettlebells now. And I was like, okay, this is like a really great performance goal for me to work on. Like, can someone my size get strong enough to complete the Iron Maiden challenge? Well, let's see. And I started to train for it. And what I enjoyed most about it was the process of getting strong was that feeling that of progress and this progress that you're just like, oh my God, I am so strong right now. I can't believe I can do a weighted pull up with like 35 pounds or like a 16 kilogram bell around my waist. You know, I can't believe I can press a 20 kilogram bell and things like that. So it was just like that type of progress was, was very empowering and it was liberating. It was liberating from the things that I had dealt with when I took ballet. 
and so after I completed the Iron Maiden challenge, I had been only worked with kettlebells and body weight. And it took me three years to train for it. So I hadn't touched a barbell in three years. And so I came back and I said, okay, I need a little bit of a change. And that's when I got into powerlifting. So I not only wanted to just have a change in the modality of strength training, but I also wanted to learn more about the barbell and about powerlifting because that wasn't my first love. You know, I, I knew so much about kettlebell training, but not, not as much about powerlifting and barbell lifting. So as a strength coach, I wanted that knowledge. And then just as for my own personal goals, I just needed a change with what I was doing in my program. You were sick of the one-handed push-ups, right? Right. And didn't you, you, <laughs> exactly. you had, you had a great PR in your powerlift, right? So when I first got into powerlifting, my max deadlift was 250 pounds and then once I started to dial in the, the the skill of deadlifting and I got on a more structured program for powerlifting, then it was within, because I want to say like the end, like in August of 2015, my deadlift was 250. And then by November, so not much longer, but like the early November, I had, my deadlift was already up 25 pounds to 275. And then I went and competed in my first push-pull meet in December 2015, and I pulled 300 pounds. So within like four months, I increased my deadlift by 50 pounds. And that was, you know, I, I'm sure the strength was there. There was a good basis of strength there from training with kettlebells for so many years. So I think a lot of it was dialing in the technique. And then I'm sure, yes, there was obviously some strength building that had to happen too. So you came from being a ballerina, which they typically have very restrictive diets. Mm -hmm. And then you've now progressed through martial arts to kettlebells, to strength work, to powerlifting. Did your performance nutrition change throughout that? And what was it at the height of your performance? Absolutely. It definitely changed. I mean, I used to be, when I was dancing and in high school and even in my 20s, I would say that really started to change when I started to study Kung Fu. I was concerned about not eating, <laughs> you know, like how was the minimal amount of food that I could eat and get through my day and, and like still step on the scale and like be okay with the number that it reads. I dealt with a lot of body image issues. So Kung Fu helped me to start to get over that. And when my focus started to be, I want to get the most out of my class at Kung Fu or when I was training for the Iron Maiden challenge, like you couldn't be like hungry and trying to lift heavy and build strength. You had to go in feeling energized and satiated and feel like you had, you had the energy to, to build that strength. So I would say the transition started with Kung Fu when you wanting to be able to perform successfully and improve and have the endurance to get through everything I needed to do in Kung Fu. And then when I started to train for the Iron Maiden challenge, I started to focus more on fueling my body properly so that you know, even like the day before. So like knowing what I was going to do in my training on a Wednesday, making sure that on Monday and Tuesday, I had good food days being like, I ate consistently three meals plus snacks. And I was fueling my body in a way 
that it would allow me to have energy on Wednesday to do whatever I needed to do. So definitely having that change and focusing on performance goals for getting strong and lifting and powerlifting, that definitely changed how I ate and my focus on food. It's definitely helped me to get over a lot of body image and, and just disordered eating. That, that I have had in the past. I would say my, my eating is not disordered at all now. You know, it's, it's definitely built around fueling my activities of the day. That is more important, making sure I have energy for all of my activities in that day, whether it's training clients, teaching classes, training myself, and then just knowing like, I know when I, when I fall off track, like the next day or even the next two days for the next two days, like I don't have the energy that I want to have for my training sessions. And I hate that. It sucks because you can't do as much as you want to do. Right. A perfect example is like the first, when I went to go do that push pull, the powerlifting meet, the weight class I competed in was because I had a choice. I could compete in the 114 pound weight class or 123 pound weight class. And even though 114 is not a hard weight for me to, to be at, like if I just like didn't eat and like for, you know, if in the morning, if I came in and I weighed in like fasted and didn't drink water or anything like that, it would be an easy water cut for me, you know, like a pound or two. But I chose like, okay, I'm going to I'm going to sign up for the 123 pound weight class because I'm not even, I don't even care. Like, I don't care what weight class. I just want to go in and lift. So yeah, that morning, like I had a really big breakfast and I remember getting on the scale and I was like to weigh in for the meat. And I think I was like 118 or 119 or something, which for me is like, that's like a big number for me. But it was because I had like, you know, three whole eggs and like... (laughs) banana and oatmeal <laughs> eating all this food, you know, cause that was my point is like, that is what was most important to me. Making sure like I was like, had a full stomach. I had a good night's sleep. I could go in and deadlift 300 pounds. Like that's what I cared about. I did not care about like seeing like 110 pounds on the scale or whatever, you know? That's amazing that you were able to take something that really can plague people for a lifetime and turn that into something positive. The, the eating really really ends up being a major crutch for people. So that's off. It definitely wasn't easy. I think I got to the point in my early 30s where I was just so sick of letting it control my life. I was so sick of letting it control my mind and control my body. And then it does, it, rule, it rules other aspects of your life. And you're like, what kind of a life am I living? This is so ridiculous. And so I think you do have to get to the point where you... You have to have a combination of you have a different focus that's much healthier that helps you to not think about those things. But also you have to get fed up. You just have to be like, I am so done with this. Like, screw this. <laughs> and then just, just to make that change. Yeah. Talking about another change in your life, you used to own Iron Body Studios in Boston, a little bit outside of Boston. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I feel like Every winter, I would see a little bit more snow, a little bit more snow, Artemis getting a little more angry. So there was like, I remember there was one winter where my sister's in Boston. She's like, the snow is piled up to the second floor mm-hmm. of my door building. And I think it was that same winter. You're like, I'm out of here. We're going to Vegas, baby. <laughs> that was like, that. I think that was 20, I want to say that was 2015 because there was this month of February that we got. In three weeks, seven feet of snow. God. And that was that was the winter that Eric and I looked at each other and we said, 
all right, as soon as we are done running this business, we are getting the hell out of this climate. Like we are so done. Yeah. And then, I mean, I'm sure you, you like your studio is your baby, right? You go and yeah. you're, you know, every minute of your day is taking care of that baby. I'm sure it was really hard to close that studio. Yeah, it was. It was, it was hard. Well, the driving decision was like the last year that we were running it. Even now we still miss aspects of it. That last year that we were running it. So Eric is an athletic trainer and to run the gym together full time, he had to step away from his profession. He, and at the time that we did it, it was right for him. He wanted that. He needed it. He needed to go and do, take another path for a little while. But he got to the point where that last year he was like, you know, I really am missing my profession. I'm really missing helping people and working as an athletic trainer. And I really want to get back into that. And I was getting to the point, I was traveling a lot, teaching my own workshop. I'm not afraid to lift. And then, and then also just speaking at other events like perform better and fitness revolution nation. I was traveling a lot that last year. And so I was so fried from travel and then managing the gym when I got home, when I was like not traveling that I think you get into this groove when you're so busy like that, that you just, you don't know how to stop sometimes and take a break and just regain perspective of what the hell is going on. So being that fried, I was just, when he mentioned it to me, I was like, okay, well, if that's what you really want to do, then like, there's no way I'm not doing this by myself. And I, you went to school for that and I completely understand. So start looking for jobs and see what happens. And then there was a part of me that him sharing this with me forced me to sit back and kind of think about, like reflect upon the past year, what I had been doing, how much I had been traveling, how hard I had been working. And if I needed to reevaluate what I was doing. And if I needed to take a step back. So he started to look for jobs and things start happened very quickly. He found, I think he only looked at like maybe two or three jobs and he found this job with Cirque Soleil out here in Las Vegas. And it's a head therapist position. And then he submitted his resume and then he mentioned it to, because he used to work as an athletic trainer for Boston University. So he had mentioned it to his old boss over at Boston University and his old boss said, hey, you know, I know the hiring manager, so let me just give her a call and find out what's happening with that position. So we did. And so through that, Eric got a, a referral for the position. And then next thing you know, Eric was on the phone with the hiring manager for the position at Cirque. And then things just moved very quickly. It took maybe like six weeks for him to get hired. So he moved quickly through the interview process. So when he was, when they flew, they flew him out. And we didn't mention anything to our members. We were like, okay, well, when we're pretty sure this is going to be a sure thing, then you know we want to make sure we can give people 30 days notice and shut everything down. So, so when he was out here for an in-person interview, it was like the last stretch. He hadn't had an offer yet, but I was like, you know what? If you get this offer, we're you're there. Who knows when you need to start? So, you know whether you have this job offer or not, we're going to have to take the risk and tell people so that you know, we can give them that courtesy. So I told people when he, he was out, it was like the beginning of October. And so we could give people 30 days notice and shut everything down by the end of October. And, and thankfully he got the job. So it, it worked out okay. I mean, I mean, and if he didn't get it, we were like, we'll figure it out. I don't know what we'll do, but we'll figure it out. You know? And it's in Vegas and it's warm. Yeah. Talk to me about how you guys train the Cirque artists, which who are really athletes, I'm so curious because I feel like 
probably a lot of those artists are working on mobility, trying to get their joints to full range while still controlling the joints and still being strong, which is such a hard balance. So they, on their own, if, you know, flexibility is something that they need to work on for whatever they're doing in the, in the show, like for example, contortionists, you know, that's something they've been doing all their life. And they, and even acrobats too, they, they, they've already worked on that on their own and they are able to maintain that mobility. So for them, it's about depending on what their, their specialty is for the show, everyone's training program differs a little. So for example, the artists, for the majority of the artists over at Ka, it's a martial arts based show and they have a whole team of artists who they I don't know if you've ever seen the show, but there's something called the wall of death and they do like all they have not seen the wall no, of death. Okay. <laughs> it doesn't sound fun. They, they <laughs> climb the wall of death and they like, and they come down on, uh, I don't want to say cords. I can't think of the word, but they are, they're attached to something that help. They, they climb it, but then they also will do other acrobatic acts, like even like going through the air and, and there, there's a lot of like running, they need a lot of endurance strength. So for them, when they come in to train with me, they need strength training. That's going to help them to stay healthy as they're going through these quick acts. And, and they also need to build endurance so they can maintain endurance through two shows a night. So their training is more like strength endurance or like cardio-based circuits. And those circuits would be like, you know, ropes and kettlebell swings and things like that. Whereas at the show, oh, you have contortionists. So typically when I've worked with contortionists, for them, it's more, you know, they can like go to town on handstands and push-ups and anything upper body related like all day long because they do that in the show and that's their specialty. But for them, it's more about helping them to work on movements that they don't typically work on themselves, like squats, lunges, deadlifts, but to a point that doesn't get them too sore so they can still do what they need to do for work, but will help them in their day to day. And it's something that's such a fine balance. Yeah, it's hard. And then also in the show, oh, there's also Olympic swimmers. So they're, they're the people, the Olympic swimmers, they come in and they just come in, they lift. You know, they just, they lift and they're fine. And they like, they've done that, you know, since they've like gone through, they've had strength coaches in the past, even before they came to Cirque. So they're familiar with that. And you're either doing something that will help, will complement what they're doing in the show, but at the same time will not, because they're doing so many reps of something in the show, you don't want to add to that repetition in their training. So it has to really complement what they're doing without overtaxing them. You don't want to make them too sore. And then you have to also just be mindful what their specialty is. So a lot of aerialists, they tend to not want to do a lot of legs or heavy legs because they want to stay light on their lower body because it makes them easier to go and do aerial hoop or whatever they're doing with the trapeze or whatever. So it does make sense for them. So it is very different than your than your average, you know, day-to-day person who used to come into our studio in Boston. So who's like sitting at a desk most of the time or, you know, or maybe stay-at-home moms or whatever it is. So do you train the men and the women differently? So like take the contortionists, like do you train the men differently than the women? No, it's more on based upon their, what they're doing in the show, like what their specialty is. There are other factors that come into play too. So I'm in strength and conditioning and Eric is in what they call physio, they're a Canadian company. So they, they call 
therapists, physio. He's performance medicine. I'm performance science. So performance medicine, if an, an artist gets hurt and needs to go through rehabilitation, they go and they see Eric, they see performance medicine, they see physio. So sometimes if they're coming out of rehab, or even if they're still in rehab, the physio may recommend that they do strength training. So there may be some things that are mandated or recommended by physio that I have to do with that artist that will be directly related to what they're doing in their rehabilitation with performance medicine. If the artist is just coming to me just because they want to strength train, they may have their own personal goals outside of the show to the reason why they're coming to train with me. But even with that, if they have their own personal goals, you still have to be mindful of what they do in the show because that's their job and they're doing 10 shows a week. That's a lot. Yeah. What is their performance nutrition? How is that handled? They don't have a full-time nutritionist, but there's, I know one woman who is out of the University of Las Vegas that they work with and there may, she might not be the only one. There may be more than one person, but I know she, you know, she for sure, they consult with her for Isn't nutrition. that interesting that these athletes require a very strict training program? It's very specific to what they do and and then kind of nutrition in general is everyone's sounds as if they it's optional. They're kind of on their own with it. It's really the interesting thing. Yeah, I think there should be more structure around their nutrition because both are related. You know, especially when you're doing that much activity, when you're doing, you know, two shows a night, like a seven o'clock and a nine o'clock, and then maybe and then if you're also training strength and conditioning, then you're coming in at like know, five o'clock and you're doing that and then you're doing your two two shows. So like, that's, that's a lot. Yeah, that's a lot. Mm -hmm. What's the biggest injury that you see with these athletes? There are a lot of knee injuries, a lot. So a lot of ACL tears. Yeah. I would say like knees, everything knees is, is uh, there's a lot, a lot of that. Why do you, why do you think that is? Is it they're not training enough lower body or they're creating hypermobility through their hamstrings or... Yeah, I think it's a combination of both, especially you see it a lot in dancers and and also in dancers, you see like some hip stuff going on, but like dancers and then, and then aerialists. So especially with the aerialists, they tend to be upper body strong, but not so much lower body strong. And because of, you know, all their life, they're focusing on just like practicing their specialty. They're not focusing on balancing it out with strength training, then they don't have the strength to support whatever mobility they have. And then if they are an aerialist, then they're going to be upper body dominant and not so much lower body dominant. So it could take the slightest thing to put their knee out in the show. Because, you know, you think about the volume that they do and then, yeah. So much. You travel the country teaching your workshop, I'm Not Afraid to Lift, which I love the name. And is it is it a woman-specific workshop? It is a women-specific workshop, yes. Tell us about it. So I developed it the year I completed the Iron Maiden Challenge because I came to realize that a lot of women were afraid to lift, whether it was because of they were afraid of how it was going to change their bodies or if they were afraid because they just didn't know what to do. And, um, and that was something I was never, you know, even as a dancer who... I I was someone who just wanted to be thinner and smaller and weigh the least amount that I could for a large 
you know, for the first half of my life, I want to say. When I started lifting weights, I really wasn't afraid of muscle and I wasn't afraid of building muscle. That didn't scare me. So it's something that I'm like, this is something that I didn't have trouble with. Like I, I liked to lift and I liked to develop muscle and I want to help other women learn to love their muscles and, and learn to love to lift and, and also just know what to do. Because that's why I think a lot of times women just stay away from it. So I came up with a curriculum based upon the program that I had written for myself to train for the Iron Maiden Challenge. So it was primarily kettlebell and body weight based, which is a really good place to start before you start working with the barbell. Because your body weight and the kettlebell, they're tools that are not intimidating. The barbell can be very intimidating and it'll help you to dial in skill and build a good solid base of strength. So I developed the curriculum for that and started teaching basic lifts. You know, we, I teach, you know, hinge, the deadlift, squat, so uh, lower body press, and then the pull-up and, and then how, how to, cause a lot of women come to it and they're like, oh, I can't do a pull-up. So how to learn to, to be able to eventually do your first pull-up and press military press. And I also teach core movements that, that are accessory movements for the pull-up. And then I also teach the kettlebell swing and I revamp the curriculum and people, they come in and they learn all this. And the, and I, I teach it in the context of programming as well. So they understand how to put things together so that when they leave the workshop they could go and do they could do it on their own. And since I got into powerlifting and last year I didn't teach lift because I didn't teach the workshop because we had moved to Vegas and last year was a year of you know I moved so Eric moved in November 2016 and I moved in January 2017. So when I came out here I had my workshops um, I'm a strong first team leader so I was teaching for them and then I had my online training business but I had to rebuild other things. So last year was definitely a year of me reestablishing myself out here and in Las Vegas and because I had built a a strong reputation back on the East Coast. So it was really interesting to come to a place where no one knew who the hell I was and what I did and yeah. <laughs> any of that. So what challenges did you face with that? Because that's, I can't, I mean, it's hard. I can't even imagine. You, you could do it. You could totally do it. <laughs> I mean, at first, part of it was kind of nice because I was pretty burnt out. So I was like, oh, okay, this is good. I'm going to use this time to recharge and read and like do some things that I haven't done in a while, like take an indoor cycling class. And because when I started out in this industry, I, I started out as a spin instructor. So that is something I do enjoy doing. So like doing stuff like that. And I read a lot last year and just kind of just figuring out what I want to do. And I did apply for a job with Cirque when I got out here. I did get a part-time position with them which the part-time was good because I was like, this is good because I can still teach my workshops if I want to. I can sell my online training clients and I can still kind of figure out what I want to do. But but at the same time, it's been hard. It's like from living on the East Coast and like building up my business and just my professional reputation on the East Coast for so many years, it's been hard being in a place where no one knows who I am and the knowledge I have or the experience that I have. And it's you have to be very strong. <laughs> you have to just be like, it's okay. Like I know who I am and that's what matters. And I'm just going to slowly show people over time in a positive way, like who I am. And as I rebuild my business and as I rebuild myself professionally out here, people will learn who I am and the knowledge I have and, and my value. So it was just kind of repeating that to myself over and over again, because I did have my moments where I was like, you know, I'm totally washed up and... 
<laughs> like I'm done. I've, I have to find another career. <laughs> and when in doubt, there's Instagram. I mean, you're such a public figure on uh, social media. Oh. Yeah, but there's something to be said about, I love interacting with people in person. Like I have online training clients, but I do love training people in person. I just, I love just having that interaction. So what's your training like these days? So last year I've kept up with barbell lifting. I usually follow a program for myself that is a combination of barbell lifting with with kettlebell training as well. So I'll have usually like two barbell training days, dedicated days a week, and then three days that are more kettlebell focused. And then, so the cycling studio that I go to, they also teach hot Pilates. And how I went to go and start to go to that studio was one of my strong first students from the March LA Strong First Kettlebell Certification last March in 2017. She she was on my team. She was a student of mine. She said, hey, you know, I live in Vegas too and I own the studio. You should come by and see me. So I went by and I saw her and so I started going to her studio and just connected with her and and she has such a great group of instructors there. They're just so awesome. So that's how I ended up at her studio. And I went through her teacher training in last November, yeah, which for her teacher training, so beyond the her Pilates curriculum, it's a Pilates mat curriculum that she teaches. Beyond that is a lot about just becoming a better speaker, a better instructor. She teaches instructor skills and speaking skills and even like sales skills. So it's overall a very good course. Like if you Pilates aside, it was just a very good course to take as a coach and instructor because nice. it, it, yeah, it was, it was very good. So I have like one of my free days is like, I'll, you know, I'll go to the studio, I'll take Pilates or cycling. I've been wanting to ask you because coming from a lifting background and knowing how to breathe down and brace is so different than Pilates, which in some Pilates backgrounds is a lot of like sucking up and in. Mm. What are your thoughts on that? Sounds dirty. I don't know. Well, I will say Gabby at her studio, it's her name. She has, they don't talk about that. They don't tell you to suck in. Or like, you know, hear the cue, like draw your belly button up and in or like close the rib cage down, which is sometimes I have a lot of people who do a lot of Pilates have a really hard time breathing other than like a shallow breath. And then, you know, bracing is like super Uh, hard for them. But then I saw you were doing both. I was like, oh my God, Artemis must know some like secret (laughs) technique that's going on. Well, you know, I think that's probably what drew me to Gabby too is because she doesn't like, she doesn't dish out any bullshit. So (laughs) she's like, she's very well trained and she is a hard style kettlebell instructor. She's a strong first instructor. When you go to her gym and you, and her Pilates mat curriculum, it's something that she, it's her signature curriculum that she developed herself. And their focus is a lot on, you know, they start up the Pilates principles being, you know, you start out with bridges and the core work. And then the second half is not, I would say it's not like Pilates specific. The first half of the class is Pilates specific, working on glute bridges and clams and planks and side planks, and then any other core abdominal work. And then the second half, you're doing, um, I would say, a body weight, or you can add some dumbbells, high intensity circuit. So, so really, just the first half of the class, but no one, she doesn't teach drawing in, or pulling in her, I would say her, the primary focus is 
like learning the difference between like a Pilates bridge and a yoga bridge. Like your Pilates bridge is, you don't want to have like that cracked eggshell in your ribs, right? So you do want to have like that brace and close that eggshell and then learn how to engage your glutes and not and not have it go into your back. And the Pilates bridge you keep, so as women, I would say like from the middle of our back, like where our bra, if we have a sports bra on, like from that point on is, is, is on the mat. So you're not a yoga bridge, you have more of your back off the mat and you're arching your back more. So this is all about keeping a neutral spine, learning how to engage your glutes. And yeah, no one uses drawing in there. So interesting. it could be a specific, I know there's so many there's like traditional Pilates and then there's so many things that have come out of it. Like Gabby has taken away that she finds useful. It's like what Bruce Lee says, when you learn something, you, you take and you use what is useful, discard what is not. So I think that for her, when she went through learning Pilates, she applied what she thought was useful to putting together a curriculum that she thought would best work for people. Artemis, I have one more question before we start to wrap. What do you tell women who think that lifting weights is going to bulk them up? I explain to them that if they want to see aesthetic changes in their body, then they need to lift and build muscle so that they can build lean body mass, so they can burn more calories at rest. So I just explain very simple, the simple science of, of what needs to happen because most women are coming in to, they want, most women want those aesthetic changes. And I also, I help them to focus on is performance goals. So beyond that, if they still have a little bit of a fear, but they still want to get started with lifting, I just kind of, you know, coach them along a little bit, session by session, having them do this, having them do that. And then naturally over the course of the sessions, they tend to start to focus on what they're doing and they're not, they start to less and less become less and less concerned about, about how their body's going to change or being afraid of building that muscle. Yeah. Artemis, where can people find you and when's your next workshop? So I'm most active on Instagram. My Instagram handle is ironbody by Artemis. And you can also sign up for my my blog on my website, ironbodybyartemis.com. And my next workshop is in Weymouth, Massachusetts at MSC Strength and Conditioning. And it's on June 2nd. And it's I'm Not Afraid to Lift, women's workshop. We're all, we're about halfway full right now. And the early bird ends on May 20th. And I've changed the curriculum a little bit so to incorporate barbell lifts. So the first half of the day, we'll be focusing on the kettlebell and the pull-up. So we'll learn the kettlebell deadlift, kettlebell squat, kettlebell press, and the pull-up. And then the second half of the day, we'll go through the big three. We'll go through the barbell deadlift barbell back squat and barbell bench press. So I updated it to reflect what I'm doing in my training. And also because I did receive a lot of requests to start to, you know, to teach the barbell. So, so it'll be exciting because it's the first time I'm going to be teaching this new curriculum with everybody. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time with us. Yeah. It's been amazing. Thank you. Really great to hear your story. Thank you for having me on the show. I'm really excited. It was really great to be here. That's a wrap. I have two truths that I fully believe in. First, to be 1% better every single day. And second, all feedback is good feedback because it helps us grow. Why do I say this? We have a great contest for you guys to share the word about muscle medicine. We have a signed copy of Brenda Bouchard's High Performance Habits, Foods That Fit Your Macros ebook by Holly Baxter. 
Kathy Dooley's Immaculate Dissection DVDs, five of my favorite health and wellness books, a 60-minute higher dose, which the infrared sauna plays, a session for two people, a Mobot mobility water bottle so you can foam roll and hydrate wherever you are, and a roll of rock tape and rock floss to get your mobility and stability in all the right places. How do you get these prizes? Go to Muscle Medicine on iTunes. Hit subscribe at the top. Give us a five-star review if you love what we're doing. And then head over to bit.ly slash muscle med. B-I-T dot L-Y slash muscle med. Send us your name, your email, hit submit, and then you're entered. Share muscle medicine with your friends to increase your chances of winning. Thank you so much from the bottom of my heart.